Thank you very much. Thanks all for coming. It's nice to see so many students here and a few faculty members. Hi, Bob. Um, it's my first time in Columbus, actually my first time in Ohio, and uh, I, I could tell I was in Ohio this morning. I woke up in this charming B&B that the Mershon Center put me in, and you're always sort of forced to have breakfast with whoever's in the B&B with you. And I ended up talking to this family that was uh, going around to colleges and trying to get their, their daughter into a program on equine studies. And I said, only, you know, now I know I'm not in D.C. anymore, where people are studying equine studies. Uh, plus, I know I'm not in D.C. because people signal when they change lanes here. Um, okay, let me start off with a poll. Uh, if any of you start working with anti-Americanism, uh, you'll probably start to be forced to work with uh, polls of global public opinion. Uh, in August 2005, the journal Foreign Affairs published a poll of the U.S. public's perception of current foreign policy. Titled ungracefully, the Public Agenda Confidence in U.S. Foreign Policy Index, the report of the poll declared Americans to be, quote, perplexed and anxious about foreign relations. Such a state arose because the U.S. public identified a clear set of problems in world affairs, but had, quote, little idea what to do about it. For those of us who are interested in U.S. perceptions of anti-Americanism, one of the most illuminating queries was an open-ended question about, quote, the most important problem facing the United States in its dealings with the rest of the world. As we might imagine, the first was the Iraq War, the second was terrorism, but the third item in response was the, quote, negative image in the view of foreign nations. Not very well phrased, but that's what they came up with. Keeping in mind this was an open-ended question, they could have said anything they wanted, this answer in third place suggests a historical high point in U.S. unease with anti-Americanism especially when added to the seventh point, which was uh, the concern over the U.S. being arrogant slash bullying. Now, more typical of historical patterns in this same poll was respondents' optimism that improved communication and dialogue with the Muslim world would, quote, reduce hatred of the United States. Ninety-seven percent of respondents uh, agreed with this. And that, quote, showing more respect for the views and needs of other countries would enhance security. Eighty-seven percent thought this. While this wide agreement on these innocently phrased questions could be expected, the poll also suggested that the U.S. public was only interested in surface changes involving things like dialogue and respect. Commitments to re reducing global economic disparity, in contrast, were nowhere to be seen. A majority felt that less poverty in the world would do nothing to reduce terrorism. 64% of respondents felt that, quote, we've already done more we're already doing more than our share to help less fortunate countries. So as my uh, 2003 book, Yankee No, suggests, such answers from the U.S. public reflect an age-old U.S. nationalist defensiveness when it comes to anti-Americanism, which has long maintained that the problem of anti-Americanism is one of perceptions, not reality. The U.S. public feels that, to be sure, many foreigners around the world live in misery and oppression, but that they unfairly blame their troubles on the powerful, wealthy, democratic United States. Anti-Americanism in this view springs from a, quote, image problem. And the solution to it should be limited to better public relations on a global scale, not substantial changes in foreign relations. The tension between this concern for, pub for foreign public, op public opinion and the attendant reticence to chain change actual policies to improve that public opinion is one of the constants in the history of anti-Americanism. It's also a tension that has long marked not just polling, not just policy, but also scholarship on anti-Americanism. And this is my topic today. 
My purpose is to ask whether we are beginning to see the flowering of a new subfield of international relations scholarship, given that the balance of opinion may be tipping towards taking anti-Americanism seriously enough to reverse actual foreign policies. My method will be to offer a critical survey of 80 years or so of literature on anti-Americanism in Latin America, and then to offer directions for future inquiry. Many of my thoughts today are from my edited volume titled Anti-Americanism in Latin America and the Caribbean, also not a very graceful title, and set for publication by Berghahn Book in uh, early 2006 as part of its, cult, its, his, uh, its uh, series on culture and international history. I argue today that there is indeed a new hope for a rebirth of quality scholarship on anti-Americanism, despite a media culture still suffused with nationalist cant. I hold that there are there has lately appeared a clearly identifiable improvement over past waves of scholarship, even in the midst of fire-breathing bestsellers and Fox News television hosts equating criticism of U.S. foreign policy as hating America. Looking backwards as well as forwards, we can see that the past of what I call anti-Americanism studies has left much to be desired, while the future holds much promise for the development of a rich panorama of questions left unanswered, topics still unexplored, and methods yet to be developed. Scholarship on U.S. power in Latin America and the Caribbean is certainly plentiful, but literature on the resistance to that power has been restrained both by political polarization and by a lack of sources and imagination. However, since the 1990s, and especially since the terrorist attacks of September 11th, new analytical sophistication and political balance in this literature have demonstrated the potential that that traumatic event has offered us to reopen minds to the past as well as the future of anti-Americanism. Perhaps the earliest wave of U.S. writings on Latin America's hostility towards the United States focused on what authors called Yankee-phobia in the 1920s. Like most commentators on U.S. Latin American affairs during that decade, most of its participants were not historians or other scholars, but government bureaucrats or students who had recently traveled to Latin America where they personally experienced hostility. They tried to make sense of past criticisms, but their explanations were, fought, were fraught with clunky analyses and the need to justify U.S. domination in Central America and, and the Caribbean at the time. Now, as the word Yankee-phobia itself suggested, these observers tended to discard out of hand all criticisms of the United States as an irrational fear of the progress that U.S. military occupation or investment were forcing on a foolishly reluctant Latin America. Mistrusting U.S. power was, to these pioneering anti-Americanists, an ingrained pathology that must be exposed to be healed. It had to be pitied, even, growing as it allegedly did out of Latin America's failed culture, its violent Spanish heritage, its priest-ridden Catholicism, its abiding social inequalities, and its European-dependent anti-modernism. The trope of anti-Americanism as pathology was so consensual among 1920s observers that the construction itself suggested fear, U.S. fear, of allowing any uncovering of its wrongdoing or hypocrisy abroad. The pathology consensus sometimes even denied that Latin Americans were responsible for their own political culture. One author characterized anti-Americanism in Latin America as a campaign by Germany, and especially by Germans who scattered there after World War I. In a typical appraisal of the time, this U.S. commentator was in fact flattered by anti-Americanism 
because he saw it as a reaction to the spread of democracy, which he called, quote, an inevitable step in the evolution of mankind. This 1920s wave of scholarship also suffered from methodological problems, mostly because its sources were almost exclusively the, quote, unquote, great texts of anti-Americanism. Many 1920s authors were students of Latin American literature only, and they valued the pithy phrase of well-heeled authors, the defiant speeches of great statesmen. They failed, however, to seek anti-Americanism in unpublished or popular sources. One author who wished for more popular evidence of anti-Americanism expressed frustration that it simply could not be found among simple folk in Brazil, where he had done his apparent research. Being largely passive and uneducated, he wrote about the Brazilians. The Brazilian common people afford us but vague inlets toward their ideas. We can thus only approach their minds by personal experience, by the testimony of Brazilian scholars who have studied their native countrymen, or by actual incidents in which North Americans have been brought into direct contact with the sentiments and actions of the populace. The obstacles to obtaining popular evidence of anti-Americanism were indeed serious. None of these early chroniclers uncovered a single poll of Latin American public opinion, neither on images of the United States nor on any other topic. I've also been working on a, bo uh, a book on the uh, U.S. occupations of Latin America during the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, and I have also not found a single poll of public opinion on anything whatsoever. Now, this first collective effort toward understanding the phenomenon, therefore, suffered from a defensive U.S. nationalism and from the elite view that only other elites could be valid historical voices. The flawed perspective of 1920s Yankee phobia scholarship foreshadowed future failures. A second wave of scholarship on anti-Americanism in this area washed over the Anglo-American world from the late 1950s until the mid-1960s. While this wave benefited from more evidence than the first, it also spread more assumptions, albeit more evenly across the ideological spectrum. Moved into action by attacks on Vice President Richard Nixon in South America in 1958 and by the Cuban Revolution especially, a broader variety of scholars now tried to explain the anti-Americanism of Fidel Castro's generation. Institutions that funded scholarship on U.S.-Latin American relations multiplied since the 1920s, and so had the reading public. As a result, sociologists, economists, and political scientists now blended their insights with those of travelers, journalists, educators, and cold warriors. Most, however, still worked with very limited evidence. Despite the fact that the United States Information Agency, the USIA, conducted path-breaking polls in Latin America uh, starting in the 1950s, few of these scholars seemed aware that these polls even existed. Moreover, although this generation had more direct interactions with ordinary Latin Americans, few conducted systematic surveys or creative analyses of, power, of, of popular sentiment rejecting U.S. power. They focused their energies instead on extrapolating the ideas and actions of small groups of communists or guerrillas and extrapolating them to the wider society. And they continued to re rely heavily on the writings of intellectuals and not ordinary people. One result was, again, a fear that Latin American sentiment was running amok. The Cold War catapulted this fear into the highest reaches of Washington, where policymakers from the Oval Office to Congress to the Pentagon associated nearly any criticism of the United States, no matter how mild, with communist propaganda. Reflecting this paranoia, scholars couched their conclusions again in metaphors of pathology. One called anti-Americanism a disease, 
and he spoke of Yankee-phobe contagion, measured on a Yankee-phobe fever chart, the same language as 30 years before. Alan Dulles, who was the director of the Central Intelligence, Central Intelligence Agency, called the spread of Cuba's revolutionary rhetoric Castroitis. As they had in the 1920s, therefore, pathology metaphors reinforced the belief that Latin Americans were unable to forge their own arguments. They had to be infected, this time not by Germany, but by Moscow or Beijing. In the 1970s and early 1980s, mainstream interest in anti-Americanism remained low and could hardly be considered a wave of scholarship. Latin Americans who had long realized the deep roots of anti-Yanquismo now contributed historical scholarship yet they often merely reprinted the great text of anti-Americanism without much comment or analysis. In the United States and Europe, there was a really sort of a reverse. Anti-Vietnam protests produced a backlash of sorts against criticism of U.S. foreign policies everywhere. The first wave of what could be called anti-anti-Americanism, this was the first wave. This focus on anti-Americanism became the refuge of scholars obsessed with branding critics abroad and, of course, the counterculturists at home as unpatriotic, xenophobic or opposed to democracy. Slowly, though, more analytic and empirical treatments of anti-Americanism emerged, cresting slowly into a third wave by the late 1980s and 1990s. This wave seemed motivated by a combination of the declining Western paranoia that the developing world was going to turn communist and by the demonizing of the United States by Islamist movements in the wake of the Iranian Revolution. Political scientists now stood at the forefront of devising definitions, taxonomies, and case studies on Latin America and on other regions of the world. While Alvin Rubinstein and Donald Smith's book, Anti-Americanism in the Third World, presented itself as a potential model of comparative global studies of anti-Americanism, it also suffered from the abiding tendency, however, to defend the United States from its critics rather than understand the critics on their own terms. Nevertheless, progress was evident. Some scholars now inquired more deeply into the strains of anti-Americanism that lay behind the official propaganda of communist states in the 20th century. More attention also focused on reasons why allies, such as France, Germany, Canada, and South Korea, seemed to produce the most virulent anti-Americanism during the Cold War. Much of this excellent work remained obscure, however, for lack of an audience or for lack of a traumatizing event such as 9-11. Precociously belonging to this third wave, Carlos Rangel's The Latin Americans appeared in 1977 and became the first book in Latin America or elsewhere to offer a a sweeping reinterpretation of Latin America's image of the United States. It was actually a smash in France, as you can imagine, and in Rangel's home country, Venezuela. The book relied on sometimes thin psychological meta-narratives, but Rangel nevertheless boldly underscored what few dared declare in public, that Latin America's image of the United States were deeply ambivalent. Almost simultaneously, others added context to that perspective. Carlos Rama in Spanish and many others in English joined their otherwise unremarkable anthologies of great texts with uh, very good observations of the material and cultural conditions that produced historical shifts in anti-Americanism in the hemisphere. The sharing of books between scholars north and south, the increase in commerce, the development of universities, and so on. By the 1990s, Latin American anti-Americanism more fully entered the purview of historians. One group of Mexican scholars provided one of the best social histories of the phenomenon, Estados Unidos desta América Latina, which paid serious attention to social psychology 
institutional context, and how anti-Americanism varied from one social group to another and one country to another, even within Latin America. In 2000, a group of Latin American scholars updated Rangel's critique of reactive anti-Americanism in the hemisphere in their popular Guide to the Perfect Latin American Idiot, uh, idiot which was also a smash in Latin America. Now we come to the fourth wave. This fourth and defining wave of scholarship has swelled quickly since the world stood agape at the destruction wrought upon the U.S. sense of invulnerability on 9-11. That day opened up scholarship on anti-Yanquismo by allowing hemispheric scholars to participate in a worldwide conversation on anti-Americanism, uh, anti such as I'm doing right now, with a broader public and by building a stronger bridge between scholars regardless of their politics. To be sure, some perils linger in this scholarship. Just as anti-communism distorted the understanding of anti-Americanism in the 1960s, the fear of terrorism now threatens to derail informed scholarship in the 2000s. The intense nationalism swirling around the media and the simplistic reassurances from the Oval Office that foreigners hate the United States because we are free demonstrate the need for disinterested scholarly interest. Now, the longing for balanced histories of anti-Americanism will not easily be satisfied. Two edited volumes published both in 2004 illustrated the continuing po political polarization of what could increasingly be called anti-Americanism studies. The first is Paul, uh, Paul Hollander's Understanding Anti-Americanism. It stands firmly to the right of the polarization. Hollander, a Hungarian expatriate, pioneered much of the scholarship on anti-Americanism in the 1980s and 1990s and deserves credit for that. He often exposed the institutional background of, and facile scapegoating of anti-Americanism, especially among the left-leaning U.S. intelligentsia. But he too often slapped the term anti-American onto anyone inside or outside the United States who criticized its policy or society with any consistency. In understanding anti-Americanism, his rhetorical technique was in evidence throughout. To string together seemingly intemperate quotations out of context and thus whip up the unwitting reader's outrage at critics of the United States. While Hollander himself was careful to state that anti-Americanism could be either rational or irrational, he and his contributors tended to give examples of only the latter, the irrational. Several chapters exclusively charted irrational anti-Americanism and paid only lip service to the rational variety. Typical of this false balance was Roger Kimball's assertion that, quote, there may be, in fact, there assuredly are many things to criticize about the, about the United States. But anti-Americanism has almost nothing to do with criticism. It is more a pathology than a position, operating not by evidence, but emotion. This is written in 2004. Kimball and others were indeed keen on perpetuating this image of anti-Americanism as a disease, Michael Radu, another contributor to that same volume, called Mexican intellectuals anti-Americanism Pavlovian. He called Argentine versions fashionable. The end result was not, in fact, an understanding of anti-Americanism, but rather the reinforcement of the shopworn nationalistic assumption that they hate us because of who we are. Free, modern, democratic, wealthy, and so on. At its worst, this argument makes a mockery of the term anti-American it, when its users abuse it to bully dissidents into silence the way Joseph McCarthy did with the term un-American. Andrew Ross and Kirsten Ross's anti-Americanism, meanwhile, gathered several think pieces from New York, New York University scholars who emphasized, with more sophistication than did Hollander, the view from the left 
that there has been no hate for the United States, and certainly no hate for what the United States is. Instead, anti-Americanism has been well-deserved resentment for what the United States does. It denies freedom to the oppressed, it chooses war over peace, it exploits the world's poor, and so on. The Ross's discussion of, anti of Latin American anti-Americanism emphasizes that the region epitomizes the most organic and purest resistance given the record of U.S. domination and therefore justified. Much as other authors on the left had done before, contributors to anti-Americanism focus not so much focus so much on U.S. misdeeds that they barely analyze the criticisms of those deeds. Anti-Americanism, the, uh, the edited volume, also inverted the rhetoric of Hollander by briefly admitting that some criticisms of the, of the United States may be emotional or prejudicial, then promptly ignoring them. The Rosses allowed, for instance, that caricature is intrinsic to the standpoint known as anti-Americanism. But then they returned to listing what the United States had done to deserve the caricature. Siding too easily with the critics, anti-Americanism by the Rosses often ended up joining anti-U.S. discourse rather than engaging it. So despite this lingering polarization, the sort of extreme right and extreme left, the events of September 11th have also allowed more moderate and more diverse scholars to delve into the complexities of anti-Americanism. And this is really my main point here. More rigorous, comprehensive, and detached scholarship now exists alongside the usual fire and brimstone. Some of the best scholarship on anti-Americanism to emerge since September 11th is more balanced between U.S. and foreign sources. It is more based on quantitative data. It's more attuned to personal narratives. It's more realistic about political opportunism. It's more attentive to generational shifts. And it is more sensitive to anti-Americanism's cultural and social meanings and articulations. While some intellectual sins of the past remain, the generalizations, dismissals, polarizations, and the distortion of evidence, a new opening has been breached for a public seemingly awakened to the importance of foreign public opinion to U.S. international relations. Jean-François Ravel's work on French anti-Americanism, translated and abridged, even became a hit in the United States in 2003. Not a very good book, if you ask me, uh, but at least people are paying attention. No longer does one need to be a zealot in favor of U.S. influence in the world, nor a sworn enemy of it to be interested in anti-Americanism. Since the extreme versions of anti-Americanism now concern everyone in the United States, and arguably the world, the public seems willing to explore not only the extreme, but the less harmful forms of hostility, and to inquire about the roots and branches of both. I want to talk about the future of anti-Americanism now or of its studies, if you want. In which direction should these studies head now? To be more accurate, we should speak of directions in the plural, recognizing the many questions still unanswered, avenues of inquiry to pursue further, and methodological challenges that may not even have arisen yet. Not only must scholars question the specifics of anti-Americanism with additional sources and perspectives, but they should open up new and more creative avenues with bolder theoretical underpinnings and more diverse documents. The following are six possible directions, and I'll go through them pretty quickly and in no particular order of importance, that scholars would find fruitful in researching anti-Yanquismo, whether in Latin America or the Caribbean or anywhere else in the world. First among these six possible directions for the future is the intellectual construction of anti-Americanism. While scholars have focused on this topic since the 1920s, few have done it justice. Still missing are studies of the contexts, shifts, and political implications of intellectual anti-Americanism, 
the sort of life and times approach to anti-Americanism studies. What political, cultural, or material conditions created communities of journalists, novelists, or poets to turn their art into criticisms of the United States? How did these intellectuals interact with those in power? Were they themselves in power? Who changed their minds and why? The literature could use histories of specific anti-US ideas, biographies, and prose apographies, which are basically common biographies of several people. Now, a second possible new direction is related to the first, the history of institutions. Since the nation state was evidently so important to the construction of anti-Americanism, how have government ministries, central banks, planning directorates, propaganda organizations, juntas, universities, philanthropic organizations, and other institutions constructed challenges to U.S. power? If Latin American intellectuals were so central, for instance, what institutions organized their opposition? Were they European universities or homegrown ones? And how did their structure and curricula evolve to incorporate the continent's growing resistance to U.S. power? The Catholic Church's role in spreading anti-Protestant propaganda and countering Protestant missionaries must also be further examined. What about media managers, such as magazine or newspaper editors, publishing houses, television producers? And finally, what about political parties? Very few were principally anti-US or even anti-imperialist. Why not? Third, what about generational studies? Scholars of Latin Latin America may ask how Fidel Castro's generation, so young when Castro took power in 1959, came to define itself so early on and so clearly against US power. Why did the U.S. generation of Simon Bolivar in the 19th century not do so, leaving Bolivar practically alone in opposing the Monroe Doctrine? Fourth, how do we blend the histories of social movements with the history of anti-Americanism? Recent scholarship on civil society in Latin America and elsewhere should lead historians to ask if anti-Americanism was an early discourse in the development of social movements. After all, criticizing the United States was often one of the only forms of political speeches allowed in public, especially under dictatorships, since leaders had little to lose by letting anti-Americanism heat up. It sort of took the heat off of themselves. How did student movements, guerrillas, economic nationalists, women's groups, and indigenous movements emerge from or into anti-U.S. movements? A fifth area is the psychological component of anti-Americanism. Many have commented on the emotionalism inherent in any anti-U.S. stance. Many of these comments aim to dismiss the phenomenon by inferring that emotions are irrational, ephemeral, and effeminate, and thus unworthy of serious consideration. In response, George Udisay has written that it's important to acknowledge the intensity of Latin American emotion on the topic of anti-Americanism, and I imagine this would be the same in other areas of the world. What if we not only acknowledge emotion, but take the analysis several steps further. Several historians have, in fact, made great strides in in exploring moments or institutions in history that promoted joy, anger, fear, or other emotions. There is a history of emotions, often called emotionology, and anti-Americanism would fit it very well. If it has been as as emotional as its detractors pretend, it should therefore be fertile ground for a psychological dig. Shame, humiliation, Envy, hatred, pessimism, and resentment all might reemerge as a consistent cluster of anti-U.S. emotions with common cultural roots and identifiable political consequences. 
The last and perhaps boldest new direction for anti-Americanism is to uncover the anti-Americanism of the poor. This direction challenges scholars to ask a series of questions about groups for whose political opinions we have barely any evidence, at least in Latin America. Yet the implications are fascinating. For example, when a U.S. plantation manager in Honduras, say, made racist remarks to his mixed-race workers, how did locals react? How do you find that out? If a U.S. corporation offered to buy a small farmer's land, what recourse did a family have? When local thugs fought U.S. sailors in a bar, what motivated them? The historian Paul Foos has suggested the rich vein that historians could tap into by noting that Mexican historiography has done little on popular resistance to the U.S. invasion of Mexico in 1848 during the Mexican War, despite there being plenty of evidence of such resistance. The history that this direction suggests would benefit most from research in memoirs, interviews, local archives, court records, and probably most importantly, at least in Latin America, the letters and records that Latin Americans keep in their own homes because they don't trust governments to keep them for them, and they're right. So those are the six methods I would suggest to have anti-Americanism studies move forward into sort of a more serious cluster of studies. Scholars have yet to develop fully this study of anti-Americanism in Latin America or the Caribbean or anywhere else in the world. Anti-Yankee sentiment is still largely taken for granted by scholars as an intuitive, I know it when I see it kind of phenomenon that requires little study. My thoughts today have attempted to delve deeper into anti-Americanism in one area of the globe, at least, in order to show how historians, as well as other scholars, still have a long way to go toward the full flowering of anti-Americanism studies. Thank you very much. Thank you, and the uh, customary way to proceed from here on is that we have a question and answer session, so feel free to ask whatever you like to ask, uh, positive or critical. Uh, also, some housekeeping rules. Uh, when you leave, please uh, clean up after yourselves. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think you can do that yourself. Right? Sure. Back there. On this uh, distinction between uh, Haiti, what the U.S. is, and Haiti, what it does, is there no evidence that the U.S. actions have or are bleeding over into attributions of the world in the U.S. itself? I mean, clearly, people are making attributions that were against the Right. Yes, of, of course. And what I'm trying to sort of encourage is that people should look at those links, you know, between what people think the U.S. is and what people think the U.S. does. Uh, instead of sort of just dismissing one or dismissing the other. Um, I mean, many people say that I think the sort of basic issue in anti-Americanism and why we tend to focus on the United States as in sort of anti-ism, and this, Alex and I were talking about this yesterday, is because the United States foreign policy itself is very self-consciously idealistic. Um, and therefore, the response to it, because Americans basically go out and expand power throughout the world saying that they want to spread the American way of life, well, it's quite normal that people will respond to that power saying the American way of life is what's wrong with that power. Um, and I think that that's really sort of in the back of the minds of a lot of people who respond to U.S. powers, that they don't want this way of life. Um, I many times don't want it myself. Um, 
And I think you've got to sort of try to find those instances and, and really have an open dialogue in which people can say, yeah, I think there are major problems with American society and I don't want it reproduced uh, in my country. I mean, that's a great idea. Um, and there certainly are plenty of sort of polling organizations that, you know, should really sort of learn about what they're, what they're polling right now and, and, and start polling these things very early on. Because what we're getting now from, in terms of anti-Americanism, is what people think now. But we have little polls on what people thought in the 80s or 90s. I mean, researchers here and there would do it, but nobody did it consistently. And it'd be great if one organization, you know, or, you know a group of scholars would really try to, try to chart this in some sort of quantitative way. Back there. Yeah. Um, how much of uh, anti-Americanism, broadly speaking, how much of this is a function of the unipolar distribution of power rather than any particular cultural attribute in the United States? That is to say, if the United States wasn't the lone superpower with China or the Soviet Union won the Cold War or the EU or something like that, how much of this is focused on, on that? I mean, is there a distinction between the simple sheer size of the concentration of power in the system now? Mm -hmm. Washington, or are there actually serious cultural attributes that would continue even if the United States was slip away from the United States? You know, it's one of those sort of questions you, you, you want a quantitative answer to, and I can't possibly give it. Um, uh, but I think, I, th I, think, I think sort of unipolar power uh, plays a big role simply because anti-American has risen so much since the end of the Cold War, uh, since you don't have the Soviet Union anymore. Um, I mean, and, and I think Americans are also more upset about it than they were during the Cold War because during the Cold War, um, there was very sort of little, you know, anti-Russian feeling or anti-Soviet feeling because, and certainly not within the Soviet sphere. And so anti, and so Americans were in fact quite proud uh, in many ways, and you see this in American documents when they sort of speak to each other, quite proud of detecting a lot of anti-Americans because they said, this is proof that our allies are free to express themselves the way they want to, whereas allies of the Soviet Union can't do this at all. Uh, and so the Cold War sort of dampened interest, you know, in anti-Americanism in that sense because it was seen as an attribute of, of democracy, whereas now people are a little bit more, you know, at least in Washington, a little more confused and disturbed about this. Yes? Um, I have two questions about the methodology. Right. Let me give you a case. The, the most pro-American um, nation in the world today is India. Uh, poll after poll shows England is in the public, okay. in the United States. And while other democracies in Europe are very anti-American, but how do you explain the lack of anti-Americanism when Georgian nations start to have more anti-Americanism? Right. Also, the lack of Right. Because over time, across history, America was not so much uh, you know, opposed, hated, 
a hundred years ago, the president of uh, Eddie Roosevelt yeah. broke a certain agreement. I think the Russian, Japanese war, and, and, and won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, I, I'm, I'm wondering why you seem to exclusively focus only on untimely Right. but not becoming more nuanced or lack of time. The second question is, What's the difference between the study of anti-Americanism and those who study American foreign policy in the mainstream, perhaps with some critical views? If you, if you, if you look at the, the American foreign policy literature, there are certain scholars uh, ranging from very critical to some critical of US foreign policy. What's the difference between those scholars and, and, and the field of anti-Americanism? Um. Well, to answer the first question, I do study the sort of lack of anti-Americanism, but I don't, I don't call it pro-American, I call it ambivalence. And that's really one of the main themes of Yankee No, is, is I really sort of focused on crises that you might call anti-American crises, a riot somewhere, or a campaign against you know, the United States government, or violence against Americans. Uh, and within that, the pro-American sentiment that remained. Um, of course, it's much more easy to identify moments in history where people are hostile to the United States than it is to identify moments where people are you know, very positive about the United States, mostly because it doesn't become a problem for the White House when people are very, very pro-American. The White House doesn't have to deal with that. The White House has to deal with crises. So it's partly just the sense of you follow the problems and you try to sort of explain the problems where they, where they exist. Now, in doing that, though, you uncover a lot of polls, and I did sort of Latin America in the 50s and 60s, uncovered a lot of polls showing that it was a lot more pro-Americanism than anti-Americanism. I mean, the polls generally showed that if people were to compare the United States or the Soviet Union or try to sort of express their sympathy towards Fidel Castro, um, they were maybe 5, 6, 7 percent negative towards the United States and easily, you know, 70, 80 percent positive towards the United States. Um, but nevertheless, this had been a growth from you know one percent or zero point five percent before, and at five ten percent, people imagined that to be much larger than it was. In fact, people were polled as to how much they thought anti-American had grown, and they thought it had grown to fifty sixty percent. But in fact, it had grown to about five or ten. Um, so that's the movement that I'm interested in: the sort of perception of anti-Americanism, and then within that, how does how can the United States, in fact, still identify? certain allies or sort of turn around anti-Americanism, or in fact see in a much more complex way that people who you know, might be highly critical of the United States are always ambivalent about it. I mean, unless they're you know, completely insane, they're always ambivalent in some way. You know, even Hugo Chavez, very ambivalent about many things about the United States. And that's what you really tr try to identify the most is this ambivalence within it. Um, I don't know if India is the most uh, pro-American. I, I thought it was Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or one of those stands that was receiving all this American money. Um, but that might, that might be just a momentary thing. That's a very good thing to pursue also. You know? But they're just sort of different, uh, uh, different topics, really. But it's, it's the other side of the coin, I agree. And I, I would encourage people to, to pursue that. Um, now, what's the difference between studying anti-Americanism and scholars who are critical of US foreign policy? Right, right. Well, the difference is I don't consider myself, I mean, I consider myself a, 
a student of criticism, but not a critic of foreign policy in a particular way. And so, I mean, I, I don't like to say I'm, you know, objective or anything like that. I mean, I'm quite a liberal Democrat. But um, I'm really much more interested in the past, certainly, and not exclusively of scholarship. I'm more, much more interested in the study of, of, of foreign policy makers and, and public opinion. Uh, and so I don't see myself at all as a critic of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, is that, does that answer your question? My question is, if you look at the study of American foreign policy, uh, at least two major schools of critical history. Okay. One is, of course, the, the left. Uh, so revisionist left. school? Right. right. The other is the traditional, perhaps, conservative or classic religious, including people like Patrick Kent, writing right. a book that is highly critical of, of the current mm -hmm. foreign policy. Because they all study the same thing, American foreign policy, or at least as one of the right, right. factors of American foreign policy. Well, if they're sort of, you know. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, it's, it's a fine line. You know, it's, 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 sort of, it's so hard to say. Everybody's got their own definition of where they, where they draw the line between, you know, is this anti-Americanism, is this just criticism, is this just, you know, fair criticism. Um, I tend to have a pretty broad definition because I like to include people who um, are simply consistent in their criticism, you know. And I, if, if you have too narrow definition of saying, well, anti-Americans are people who are irrational and want to murder Americans and they hate all Americans no matter what, it's not much to study there, you know. I mean, you know who these people are and uh, that's not particularly interesting to me. I'm much more interested in people who are pretty mainstream, you know, um, but get into political situations where they're, you know, in a sort of oppositional stance to the United States and, and they become sort of self-identified as that and they find their own political and cultural values through that opposition. Um, and I'm not particularly interested in that much in scholars, you know. I don't do intellectual anti-Americanism. Uh, and so I'm much more interested in sort of political movements and political groups. Factor. Oh, very much so. And, and in what way? Um, I mean, in countries that were invaded or occupied or just under, you know, sort of severe American influence for a long time, such as the Caribbean and Central America and Mexico, um, it's a much more historically rooted anti-Americans where people remember very specific incidences um, and they're generally not hostile to American culture. You know, they import American culture, they consume it, they reproduce it, they identify with it. It becomes part of their national identity. Uh, you could read, you know, Lou Perez's book on, on Cuba on this. Um, but at the same time, they have very specific, often in their families, memories of this. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was in Dominican Republic last year giving a talk at the Academy of History, all in Spanish, everybody was a Dominican. And... Uh, and I, in fact, was making the case, as I make in, in Yankee No, that the Dominican Republic was relatively less anti-American than Cuba and Panama, which had a much longer history of, you know, oppression from the United States. And so I was making the case that Dominicans, in fact, were very practical in their anti-Americanism. They oppose it when Americans are, you know, American troops are there. When they're gone, they're all pro-American all over again. And I thought they would be sort of flattered and agree with this. 
And every single person in that audience said, you're totally wrong. We've always hated the Americans. And we still do. And they would tell us, tell me stories about their grandfathers. One had fought with Fidel Castro in the, in the 50s. Uh, and they told me stories of their grandfathers who fought the Americans tooth and nail in 1916 when they landed, and of holding parades and um, rallies and riots against Americans. And I've not seen this in any newspaper. You know? And that convinced me that these are the people you need to tap into to get these stories. And you won't get this story in Argentina because those things never happened. In Argentina, in Argentina, you know, people might have read Che Guevara, um, but they've certainly, they've probably mostly read authors and they've read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and they've gotten sort of, you know, a sense of their anti-Americans, if you want to call it, uh, mostly through literature and other people's experiences, but certainly not their own countries. So South America is really sort of a, a case apart. And of course, South Americans are also much more educated, generally speaking, Chile, Argentina, uh, and so there's more, there's more literate people. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you see this like sort of anti-Americanism as a more newer thing with the powerful country? As, like, do you see it as a pattern in history where the powerful country becomes hated by other nations or other countries or other cultures? Yeah. Or is it more of this globalization of like we're now on more level? We're trading with other countries, we're doing things with other countries, our economies are clashing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the hatred is new. You know, I don't think the imperialism is new. I don't think the hatred is new. There's always new forms and, you know, new articulations. I think what is new that is making us more aware of anti-Americans, as people who are not particularly involved in imperialism or the resistance to it, is media. Um, and media has really been one of the more important weapons, not only of expanding anti-Americanism, but uh, expanding American power, but responding to it. Uh, it's the fact that people know a lot about the United States through cable television, through the internet, through newspapers, and they can respond to the, to the United States through those very same methods. And so uh, someone like Hugo Chavez becomes president, he's got a huge media empire at his disposal, you know, and in fact he's changed the laws of the media to to, uh, to minimize criticism of himself in that media. And so very marginal groups that even in the 50s and 60s could have put out a small newsletter, you know, are now all over the internet, sometimes spouting, you know, outrageous things. Um, but they're forming all sorts of groups, and this is a huge reason for why in Latin America now you have indigenous groups and women's groups and, uh, you know, people who grow coca leaves, uh, all organizing to reject uh, reject the drug war as this sort of American way of life coming to impose poverty upon them. Uh, and they're using the media to do it. Uh, Alex? Alex, there have been other empires around before, and uh, yet we don't have a term like anti-Romanism, anti-Frenchism, anti-Britishism. Uh, there was anti-communism, but there was no anti-Russism. Yeah, I think you asked me that last night, and I didn't really know. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I had an answer. It wasn't a good one, but it was an answer. Um, I think it comes back to U.S. foreign policy, at least from the U.S. point of view, really being an expression of national identity. 
and trying to sort of shape the world in the U.S. mold. And when you try to do that, people reject that shaping as a rejection of, na of US, U.S. national identity. Whereas I don't think people really saw communism as not wanting to be Russian. You know, they were anti-communist because they didn't want to be communists. Um, but they don't really reject, I think, uh, they reject the United States often because they don't want to be like America, or they don't, you know, or they do want to be like America, but they see the hypocrisy that, in fact, foreign policy doesn't make you like America. It makes you poorer, it makes you, you know, saddled with war and debt and so on. Uh, and so they, they don't reject necessarily national identity, but they reject the fact that Americans are trying to convince them that this is an imposition of national identity. Um, back there. I do, and it's been, it's been a dilemma since I've really started working on these things, really. I mean, in the 90s, you know, when I was doing my dissertation, I was, I was saying, is there anything there at all? I mean, what, what am I really looking at here, you know? Um, is it foreign public opinion? Is it just, you know, negative images? What is anti-Americanism? Does it, you know, is there even a there there? It was very confusing, especially before September 11th, you know? Um, but the more I started looking at it, historically and looking at evidence, the more I saw people using this term throughout history, at least in the period that I was looking at. And then, you know, as I did more and more research, I found out people have been using this term for the longest time. And in fact, they have encountered this problem. They've not really talked about it because scholars like to think that they, they have the truth and they're objective and, and they're, they're not inventing terms. Um, but in fact, the term has always been floating. You know, it's never been solidly defined. There's almost never been real agreement on what it is. Um, but what I'm interested in, I mean, and, and scholars should probably do the history of, you know, the lack of definition of this term. Um, I chose to sort of use a, um, to just sort of look at the phenomenon itself without asking too many sort of phenomenological questions about it, you know, but just sort of look at things that seem the most obviously anti-American to me. You know, leaders were extremely hostile, riots where people were just trying to kill any, anti any American they could find, uh, things that people defined back then as anti-American, you know, and things that specifically the White House said, okay, we have an anti-American crisis on our hands. We must understand it, and then we must counter it in some way. 
And that was sort of good enough for me, if you want. And, and now I, I continue studying this by saying, you know, if, if people are being polled and they're, they're saying that we're concerned about anti-Americanism, that's good enough for me also. Sure. Both. I mean, uh, I, I take to heart the comment by uh, Noam Chomsky, who said the very concept of anti-Americanism, I think, is a, a sign of American vanity, you know, that, that we've got to assign a word to this, was in fact, this is just imperialism and resistance to imperialism, and that's really all there is. Um, but we try to sort of couch it in this, um, this sense of identity, you know, but, but, I, but I think he's wrong about that. There really is something cultural and something about national identity at play here where people are rejecting major traits that they see identified with the United States, and specifically with the United States. So much of your emphasis is on rejection of the United States. I'm wondering if it involves any um, say, uh, incorporation and honoring of what they are. I mean, another trend that's occurred in the last 100 years is the rise of national identity in non-U.S. places. I mean, the wave of strongly in the middle 19th century that really takes off in the 20th century is really a story about what's changing there, not what's changing here. Right. It could be that as national identities of their own become more clearly defined uh, and state nation, or states try to make nations there and create these psychological and national identities of in-groups uh, that others and out-groups get increasingly defined in polarized terms. So I guess I'm wondering if in your story it's all about us, all about the U.S. doing to them, and if there's anything in the story about the evolution of politics there. Oh, very much so. National identities there, leading their national identities to see outgroups, the U.S. being the most prominent outgroup in increasingly polarized times. Oh, right. I mean, my book is really the study of, of three countries defining themselves in opposition to the United States. You know, it's really the study sort of anti-Americanism contributing to the construction of national identity in these countries. Um, and in fact, I have sort of three long stories uh, uh, in which I, I say that in every, in every country there's a real different uh, trajectory towards this. And part of the challenge of United States foreign policymakers and the, and the media is to figure this out. You know, why are Cubans rejecting, you know, especially the government of Fidel Castro, rejecting the United States so much? And you really, and there, there is sort of an explanation in my book, which is that they've been, in fact, so marked by U.S. influence, U.S. culture, U.S. trading, that in order to oppose U.S. foreign policy, Fidel Castro feels, and many people around him feel, that they must, in fact, purge Cubanness of its Americanness, if you want, because Cubanness has been so stamped with being also American that they've got to sort of purge themselves of it and therefore get rid of. You know, liberals and anybody who has any doubt that um, that the United States should have substantial influence on on Fidel Castro, and that sort of explains the political choices that he makes in '59 and '60 and so forth. And that's actually another thing I would encourage all scholars to do. But the point is that you don't want to sort of slide from that into a story about nationalism. It can't be only about nationalism. 
It's about all sorts of other things coming together. You know, there's, there's other ideologies in there, socialism and all sorts of radicalisms, and there's anti-modernism and conservatism. Uh, there's liberalism. And so if you turn this in, and that's, that was the problem when I was conceiving these projects is I don't want this to be a history of nationalism. That's been done very well. Uh, but I'm interested in how the United, uh, the United States and anti-Americanism sort of reshapes nationalism and adds to it, if you want. Okay. There you go. Someone hasn't spoken yet. I'm wondering what you do in a situation where anti-Americanism seems to be fundamentally defined differently in the United States and versus another. For instance, you might have a country where there's popular support for parties that oppose foreign corporations, foreign influence, particularly United States influence within the country, both politically, economically, et cetera. But they're going to have to go to polls. Yeah. Opposing, you know, from the United States standpoint, because the policy standpoint, uh, the policy position seems like that might be defined as anti-Americanism. From the other country standpoint, you know, they, they enter the polls, they say, no problem with the United States. In the context of the Cold War, we are sort of have the United States brand in the Soviet Union. Right? Yeah. What what is that? How do you? Um. How do you sort of grapple with? Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't ask just, you know, are you anti or, or pro-American? That's just too vague. You know, you've got to sort of – you can ask about general general sort of images of the United States, but you should get as specific as you can. You know, are these religious-based? Are these – you know, how old are you? What generation are you from? And, for example, many people have studied South Korea, and in South Korea there's a clear pattern that is almost exclusive to that, and it's generational. And it's that people who lived through the Korean War – are almost uniformly pro-American. There's almost no anti-Americanism in that generation. And these people by now, though, are pretty old. Uh, and so the generation that was born after that, especially the students, um, are extremely anti-Americanism because they have no memory of it. And they're also in these student organizations, and student organizations in South Korea at, are sort of given the role of you know, rejecting foreign influence, generally speaking, and, and expressing political ideas much more than even political parties do. Uh, and so I guess better polling is one of those things. And then attention, you know, and, and posing those same questions as, as a U.S. foreign policymaker, you know, asking those same uh, questions. And I think, I think scholars can really sort of help with that by showing that it's not been the same everywhere, you know. In the Cold War, it wasn't always about communism. Um, and so now it's not always about Islamic terrorism. You know, there's all sorts of reasons and, and sort of social reasons why people do these things. Professor, uh, because it's going to stay around a little bit, so we'll talk to you privately. Thank sure. you very much. Thank you very much.